0: That's a piece of the problem is we've been sold this idea of what kindness is. And no matter how well-intentioned it is, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's meeting needs. Yeah. And sometimes in giving the action of kindness, I feel good about it, but I'm not actually helping, right? Yeah. Kindness without empathy beneath it oftentimes serves me more than the person receiving it.
1: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, do you wanna be a more kind and loving person naturally without even trying? If you said yes, I think you will be particularly interested to listen to this interview with today's guest, Houston Kraft. He is author of Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk and act in kindness. Houston has spent the last 10 years visiting more than 600 schools and events around the world to talk about things like empathy, compassion, connection, kindness, mindfulness, and resilience. He's worked with more than 2,000 schools across 46 states in nine different countries, and his work has reached more than a million students. In this interview, we talk about what gets in the way of us being kind how we can overcome that, including to ourselves. We talk about the difference between being nice and being kind. We talk about something Houston calls confetti kindness, how it's nice, but how it's different from deep kindness, the kind of empathetic and compassionate kindness that we need today. Houston is a founder of something called Character Strong. Character Strong teaches skills and philosophies of leadership through the lens of compassion and character. And currently, Character Strong's work focuses on pre-K to fifth grade, working in preschools and elementary schools to integrate conversations around kindness, courage, gratitude, and more into the fabric of what they do. You can learn more about Houston at HoustonCraft.com, that's craft, K-R-A-F-T, or at DeepKindness.com, and you can follow Houston on Instagram, at HoustonCraft. So... As challenging as things might seem or can be, I'm glad to know that there are people like Houston in the world who have devoted their life to living and teaching a message that's so important. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Houston Craft. Houston, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Thank you. I didn't know I walked in the doors, but I'm here now. (laughs) You are
1: here. You have arrived. Yeah. <laughs> Houston, will you tell me, please, what
0: is life about? I love, yeah, let's start it with the the low, the low grade questions and we'll move up from there. I think life is about identifying where your greatest gifts meet the world's greatest needs and figuring out how to do that really well.
1: Mm, I like that. I understand that part of the work you do involves being, and I might have this wrong, a professional hugger. <laughs> is, this, is this the case and is this where maybe one of your greatest gifts meets one of the world's greatest needs?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I've never framed my professional hugging through the lens of deep global need, but I think you're right. I think what hugging is and does for me, I've realized actually just over the past probably two years that physical touch is maybe more of a love language for me than I realized. And that sensation of, of holding and being held I look around the world right now and it's so fascinating to watch right in the absence of that, sort of like the restrictive absence of that, perhaps the the greater realization that we're we going to miss this thing for a little while. Yeah. Um, so my professional hugging has taken a pause, but I'm trying to do it from a distance. I've come up with some creative, you know, back to back facing each other, you know, some points of contact that are COVID friendly. It's been a challenge though, you know, it put me out of the hugging work for a little while.
1: Understandably so. In fact, I saw a story online a while back that was uh, a man who'd made some kind of a hug coat out of a shower curtain so he could hug his mother safely. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, that's gives us a sense of how important this is, the human connection and the physical contact and that kind of thing. Uh,
0: like, yeah. He might be a more, he'll be my mentor in the professional hugging game.
1: Yeah. He he could, we could both learn from him. I've, I've only seen my mom in person a few times since this pandemic started, but let me, let me ask you a bit about your current the book that is about to release, by the time people hear this, almost certainly it will be out. So your, your book, Deep Kindness, A Revolutionary Guide for the Way We Think, Talk, and Act in Kindness. This is not something you just woke up and scribbled one day. I, I know that. I know you've been around the world or at least around North America to more than 600 schools delivering this message of deep kindness. And you say in this book, the way you phrase this really made me think a little bit. You say that a kinder world is an urgent priority. That might be self-evident, or we'd all have our own take on that, but why do you say that?
0: Yeah, self-evidence aside, I think, I think it's an urgent priority because of the gap that we collectively experience between what we say is important and what we actually do for each other. Mm. The most, I suppose, tangible evidence comes from Harvard's Making Caring Common project, fantastic sort of department of Harvard run by its researcher, Dr. Richard Weisbord. And he has this brilliant and frustrating study where he asked families to rank what they want their kids to be high performing, happy, or kind. One, two, three, and 80 something percent said they'd rather their kids be happy and kind over high performing, encouraging, encouraging initial data. Mm-hmm. Then they took the same survey to the kids and said, hey, what do you think your parents want you to be? high-performing, happier kind. And the data was the exact opposite. Wow! And the study calls it the rhetoric reality gap. Hmm. And so I think a kinder world is urgent because we have long said it's important and have long neglected to actually make it important.
1: Well, as one who's devoted much of his life to coaching, I've, I've seen this very much, you know, in my own life, of course, but also in the lives of my clients that there's often that gap the knowing-doing gap. Mm. And you introduced me to a word I'd never heard before, this akrasia or weakness of will. Will you talk about what is that?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Brain Pickings by Maria Popova, one of my favorite blogs, writing. She's, She's this brilliant curator of just massive amounts of information. She takes these complicated topics and she wraps authors and philosophers and poets around them so we can sort of better unpack ideas and one of the articles was was sort of explicitly about this weakness of will. And I read it. I read the article while I was writing the book. <laughs> and I was like, this is it. I love words. I've always loved words. I think words sort of shape our experience in the world in, sure. in more ways than I think we are typically conscious of. Yeah, Because they, the way we think about an idea of something in our brain is ultimately going to shape the way we act with it. And so, Akrasia, when it was translated, it's a Greek word, translates to our weakness of will. When I read that, I was like, that is exactly what I've been trying to talk about for so long. Yeah. And of course, the English language sometimes is a bit clumsy. And Akrasia is this, like, this brilliant concept of we have, uh, as you mentioned, long had this knowing-doing gap. And in many ways, the book tries to explore that specifically for kindness, right? What, is, what exists in that gap? What pushes knowing and doing apart from each other around this concept that we all, for the most part, collectively agree is pretty important. And then in, I think, moments of particular need, we're sort of profoundly bad at.
1: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how that can be our reality, that we can say it's important. We can even believe that we are that. Mm -hmm. But if we look at our behavior, if we're able to look at it honestly, or maybe in some cases, uh, you know, objectively from outside ourselves, we see that's not the case. But part of it, I also like that you've given some new language, at least to me, about how to think about kindness, how to describe it. That's one thing I want to ask you about. How, How do you define kindness? How do you think about this? And I noticed, by the way, as I go to set this up, that in the book, you capitalize the word. So clearly it has a significance for you, but will you just tell us, what are we even talking about as we embark on this conversation about kindness and being more kind?
0: Yeah, I always resist the temptation to wrap it into a tight bow because the intention of the book in many ways is to spend you know, 200 pages <laughs> defining it because I think in some ways that's the definition it deserves yeah. and to reduce it in many ways is, is what we've collectively experienced. It's part of the problem is my yeah. pitch. And having worked in lots of schools, uh, I, I see all the, the whole spectrum of motivational posters I have borne witness to, right? Everything from the clever to the cliche, to the like hand-painted on walls, to the pre-packaged printed posters that just say success or whatever. <laughs> yeah. and one of the most common posters I've seen in schools over the years is throw kindness around like confetti. And whether you've seen a poster that poster in particular, or one like it, it's not an uncommon idea of like, sprinkle that stuff everywhere, like kindness is free, why not be more kind? And I think the intention behind those are obviously good. Yeah. The whole concept is we need to be more kind. The damaging part is that when we talk about kindness, like it is as simple or as easy as throwing confetti, Mm. we simplify, or in the book, I use the word fluffify, (laughs) This really critical, profound concept in our brain down to something that is light, fluffy, free, accessible. And when we think about something as free, we don't, you know, attach value to it. And when we don't have attached value to a thing, we don't allocate the right resources of time, energy, of money, of curriculum, of trainings, of discipline in order to improve at that thing. Yeah. And so I think there's this. But really what the book spends a lot of time unpacking is the difference between what I call confetti kindness, Mm -hmm. which I think is in many ways what people sort of first think of when they think of the word, and deep kindness, which is to me the argument of this is the the type of kindness the world really needs. And the difference between the two is really critical because I think we will more readily give confetti kindness in large part because it makes us feel good. Right. And we will resist deep kindness because it's quite a bit more complicated and uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, yeah that that's an interesting that's an interesting nuance to me about you know it's it's easy to be kind when it feels good to you as the the person who's being kind, and that's a, what you're saying about confetti kindness. But then this deep kindness that can be challenging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Kindness. Okay. So what what's challenging about deep kindness? Like and. Yeah. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm really, I'm really interested in, you know, what is, what is deep kindness? So let's stay on that a little bit. Like, how can we do it? What's challenging about it? Talk to me about that.
0: Yeah. But if I were to attach a couple of adjectives early on to deep kindness, I would attach uh, intentional. Mm-hmm. I would attach disciplined. I would attach empathetic and I would attach sacrificial to the concept of deep kindness and in many ways. I would also attach courage and the book tries to unpack how deep kindness is is the byproduct of a lot of those things sometimes on their own and sometimes coming together in concert so i i i think that the i like to think about what things are by thinking about what they're not right contrast helps me understand the world and one of the my favorite insights into the idea of kindness came when i was speaking at a at a high school in texas and this kid came up to me after the talk and he was bigger than me and looked cooler than me and I thought he was going to kind of hassle me because sometimes mm. high school kids are already, you know, walking the path of cynicism, especially when it comes to like something that feels for them fluffy, like kindness, yeah. partially because the world and their school has projected on them. You got to do this thing. We have a kindness week. And kids are like, kids have that uh, innate sense of you're forcing me to do this thing that is actually phonifying something that I I think is actually more precious. Yeah. And this kid walks up to me and he says, you know, Houston, after today, after I listened to you, I realized I'm a really nice person. And I was like, cool, man. <laughs> Good. You know, I, I guess that's the point. He goes, no, I realized that I'm nice, but I don't think I'm very kind. And I said, what's the difference? And he says, well, nice is easy. You know, Everyone at my school, I think would say that they're kind. He goes, but I think they're actually nice. What's nice is just a reaction. If I'm nice to you, you'll be nice back to me. If I like you, I'll be nice to you. If I agree with you, I'll be nice to you. If you drop your stuff, I'll go and help you. He goes, but kindness, I think is different. The way you talked about it today, It made me realize that kindness, if niceness is like reactive, kindness is proactive, Mm. right? Kindness requires something of me. It requires me to make time for this practice. It requires me to go out of my way to seek opportunities to serve, to endeavor to serve, uh, in your words, which I love so much. And it requires me to, he had this really profound statement. He goes, why do we have to wait for bad stuff to happen until we practice making people feel good? Wow. And then this senior boy at a high school in Texas, he's, he's crying. I don't think he meant to cry in front of me, but he, he starts to cry and he goes, I realized that kindness requires a lot of work. And I think mm-hmm. I have a lot of work to do. And I was like, yeah, man, me too, I'm wow. <laughs> in the same boat. So I think, you know, in the, to, to take an initial pass at what deep kindness is, it is not niceness, which I think is what people claim to be. When they claim that they're, I'm a kind person, right? This yeah. sort of sense that I've already arrived. I think what they're typically saying is I'm I'm a, I'm a nice person. Yeah. I will do it when it's comfortable, when it's convenient, and sometimes when it serves me and and I think that probably the most profound example in the book to me of that distinction is a story that I uncovered in in thinking about and researching empathy and it was on the far side of the Sandy Hook shooting. People from all over the world wanted to do something kind. Right here's this moment of pain, people come around that like oh, I'm supposed to be kind here. And so people from all over the world sent teddy bears, stuffed animals to Newtown, Connecticut as an act of kindness. So many teddy bears, in fact, that they had to rent a 20,000 square foot warehouse just to house all the inbound gifts. It was costing them money and management and bandwidth they did not have to, to contain this stuffed animal onslaught. And the guy that ran the candlelit vigil said that there were more stuffed animals there than there were people. And in a pretty profound statement, he goes, you know, a teddy bear is great, but a teddy bear doesn't pay for counseling and a teddy bear doesn't pay for a funeral. And I, that reading that in a little side article in some journal, I thought to myself, that's a piece of the problem is we've been sold this idea of what kindness is. And no matter how well-intentioned it is, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's meeting needs. Yeah. And sometimes in giving the action of kindness, I feel good about it, but I'm not actually helping right? Yeah. Kindness without empathy beneath it oftentimes serves me more than the person receiving it.
1: Yeah. That's it. That's an interesting nuance that I think if someone is really willing to, to look at, you know, and, and I realize this is a kind of inquiry that in some ways is one, I, it occurs for me as one of privilege, right? I mean, if we're looking for where our next meal is coming from or how we're going to make rent really, or, if, or heaven forbid, if we're in a conflict zone or caring for, you know, a sick child, these are not necessarily the kinds of questions we're asking. We're just trying to get by. Hmm. Right. So there's a way in which to even be able to ask these questions, I think is a, is a gift, but I know many people are in that situation. Clearly we are, so we're exploring it, but this, and by the way, if I, if I just share one other thought, I have a friend who's a marriage counselor and he introduced me to the distinction of touch giving versus touch taking. And he talks about the example of, you know, if, uh, if one partner in a a marriage is over the sink doing dishes and the other comes up behind, you know, him or her while, you know, he's got his hands in the sink, totally vulnerable. and just starts, you know, basically groping. This is not touching for the recipient's benefit. This is touch taking. (laughs) But then if we give a massage or we're lovingly stroking our partner, you know, then it's touch giving. And how interesting that even in the act of physical affection, there could be touch giving or touch taking. And I'm hearing a similar thing in what you're saying about, You know, being nice versus being kind. You know, kindness with empathy. So, anyway,
0: yeah, I think there's a distinction that's important around with a spirit of generosity and where it is coming from. And sure, yeah, certainly to inquire into these ideas does come from a place of of privilege. And in my experience working in lots of schools and a variety of different kinds of schools, Mm -hmm. I found that oftentimes the people who are most sort of naturally empathetic come from the most traumatic, challenging experiences. I did a a workshop with student leaders one time where the goal was to write a meaningful note. And the premise was, there's always more to learn about people. Mm -hmm. And that was the only hint. And there was like one piece of information on a piece of paper and there was more information to be found around the room, but they didn't know that. And there was two public schools and one alternative school in the room. People who for whatever reason didn't feel successful in a traditional school model. And the note the difference between the two notes that people wrote to the recipients of this challenge or this task i cannot contrast them enough to you one was very much the confetti like celebratory Mm -hmm. and the other one was like i'm so grateful for you as a babysitter because i know for me that was one of the most important people in my life the relationship that i had with this person who showed up every day when my parent or my grandparent wasn't available and Mm -hmm these are high school students, and you just get this this insight into, well, maybe there are a group of us who, who don't have access mm-hmm. to some of these reflection questions because of the circumstances of their life. Sometimes I have found them to be the most, innately isn't the right word, but experientially understanding of what deep kindness is, either because they have a, a greater understanding of pain in the world or because they have craved deep kindness in their life profoundly.
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting. Let me ask you, what what prevents us? What gets in the way of us being kind?
0: Yeah, my favorite question. <laughs> One of my favorite stories. There are questions on whether or not it is fully true, but the, the story holds up either way. That in the early 1900s, the Times out of London put this question out to the world. And the question was, what is wrong with the world today? And I'm sure people had strong opinions then as they would now. And people, they were interested, right? They wanted to get the great writers and thinkers and philosophers at the time to to respond to this question, what's wrong with the world today? And they got all sorts of responses. But my favorite comes from G.K. Chesterton, who was a philosopher and theologian and writer. And he responded, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. It's a power move. I love that response. <laughs> yeah. Just radical ownership over I'm what's wrong with the world. And I remember the first time I was introduced to that idea, it was just sort of that humbling recognition of that. I am typically the number one thing most in my way of doing the things that I most want to do, especially as it relates to something like kindness. Yeah. And so I unpack that question of, of what gets in my way. When I think about all the opportunities I've had in my life to practice what I've been trying to talk about with deep kindness. I heard on a podcast one time, wise people take their own advice. Mm. I was like, ooh, that hurts. As a speaker and a presenter, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I have a hard time living into the things that I know are important.
1: Well, and I do think it's true. I do think it's true that we teach what we need to learn.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Right. Yeah. And then I've, I've read that there was a sign at Esalen for years that said that, but then right next to it was one that also re- reads, and we are our own worst students.
0: Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah complicated classroom we are in and yeah. of ourselves yeah. and true and, and that's why I think the self-inquiry into what gets in my way what what is preventative for me you know people ask that sort of the spirit of that question in a lot of different disciplines in our life mm-hmm. the book revolves around asking that question around kindness and compassion and I say there are three three primary things at least for myself incompetence insecurity and inconvenience the first one, of course, is just if I don't know how to do certain things, then I'm less likely to do <laughs> the main thing I want to do, right? If I don't have the skills that live beneath an action, then sometimes that action gets harder. The example I allude to in the book is I live near a, a Gold's gym uh, here in Venice Beach. The This one is literally the mecca of bodybuilding. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like literal Terminator works out of this gym. Wow. And I have been in this space before just absolutely humbled and (laughs) terrified as I walk around there's like hundreds of machines 98% of them I don't know how to use and I do know how to use the pull-up bar and I do know how to use a a bench press like those are the two things I'm familiar with so when I go to Gold's Gym out of all the options available to me what do you think I use? Pull-up bar and (laughs) bench press yeah the two yep. that are most familiar yeah and so i think the same thing's true with kindness if i only know one version of it and if i only have the tools in my toolbox to present one version of it then i'm going to continue to walk that path until something else is introduced
1: yeah and, and by the way if i may just jump in i realize you might you might get to this but i love your view people people do good when they can mm. do i have that right
0: yeah yeah so how,
1: <laughs> will you talk about that
0: yeah so for thinking about the metaphor of the of the toolbox of what's available to me to give kindness. One of the skills the book talks about, one of the competencies I try to unpack is emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Right? This sort of like f- fancy term to really say when we feel big feelings, we have a harder time acting in alignment with who we want to be. It makes sense. Big feelings take over parts of our brain and our body that prevent us from clarity of decision making. But there's a whole skill set, right? There's a whole discipline involved with being able to regulate those big emotions. To take us from a really big high down to a more moderate average. And my friend Annie is a, an amazing child therapist. And I was working with her at camp one year, a leadership camp I'm a part of in Washington. And she told me to read this book by Dr. Ross Green. And his, his big line in the book is, kids do well when they can. And he's also a child psychologist. And he talks about how children want to impress, want to be cared for by adults. It's like a, an innate programming. Mm-hmm. And so, we, we tend to project onto them when they're not, quote unquote, behaving the way we want them to, that it is somehow their fault or it is motivated by they want, they're being manipulative in some way. Mm-hmm. And his whole premise is, you no, know, kids want <laughs> adult respect, want adult love. Mm-hmm. And so, the only reason why they wouldn't behave in the way that we maybe want them to, he says, is because kids do well when they can. And if if they're not acting that way, it's for one of two reasons, lagging skills and unsolved problems. Lagging skills, meaning I don't have the tools in my toolbox to to behave in the way you want me to right now. Or number two, unsolved problems, meaning I got other stuff going on in my life that is driving my actions in this circumstance. And the edit that I make to Dr. Ross Green's quote is just people do well when they can, not just kids, because I don't think there is a formal age where all of a sudden we get those tools (laughs) or that our problems suddenly go solve. And the the chapter talks about the practice of emotional regulation, because when I'm feeling angry, which is a, a healthy emotion in many ways, but if I don't know how to manage that emotion, anger can become violence, anger can become silence, right? I can retreat or I can attack and I can do all sorts of things that may not be the sort of kindness that I want to live into. Yeah, it can be self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, not kind towards myself. Right. But if I have some tools, I've been taught some of those things or given space or time or room to practice those things in my life, I can take an angry moment and I can channel it towards you know passionate advocacy. I can take, which I, right now, I feel angry just about every day. <laughs> and I want to channel that into something healthy as opposed to just rage quitting the world, you know? Yeah. Well, and
1: what you're talking about here, a lot of us, I think, I think all of us want to be more loving. I know all of us want to be loved. We want to Mm -hmm. have that. And it means of course, different things to different people or different parts of what it means to be loved or missing from our emotional diet, I think. But anyway, I kind of digress where I'm trying to go with this is that when we're working to become better versions of ourselves, more compassionate, more patient, more kind, loving, understanding, tolerant, these kinds of things. I think there's a way in which that can exist for us as a vague desire, but we don't know how, right? Like we'll, we'll want it, but as a practical matter, what do you do differently when you get out of bed in the morning? Right. Mm-hmm. And and what you're saying here about, you know, really looking at someone who is behaving in a way we don't condone or we don't like or whatever, and putting Like viewing that through this lens of, well, one of two things is true. It's either lagging skills, as you said, or unsolved problems in their life. Like if we choose to view someone's behavior through that lens, instead of they're a bad person, you know, or some other thing that to me seems so massive in becoming more empathetic, more compassionate, more kind that, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I have a hard time stressing this. Maybe it's just landing with me, but How have you seen? I mean, do people when you teach this? Because I've never heard this before. You you wrote it in your book this way. Do people? Do you see that this makes a difference for people truly? Just to have that that concept, or is this just an idea that you know lands with some people and not with others? Does this this question make sense? Does it matter?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it it does. It does make sense, and I think one of the one of the premises we talk a lot. I I run a co-founded a curriculum company with one of my heroes and and best friends. His name's John, and our the goal of it's called Character Strong. The goal of Character Strong is to teach, teach the social and emotional skills that allow us to live lives of character, whatever we've self-identified that to be, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of people we want to be, how do we actually live those lives? And how do we integrate that into education to teach the competencies that we know so many of us need to, to thrive and thrive in a lot of definitions of success. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the quotes we lean on often is, a Samuel Johnson quotes, "People need to be reminded more than they need to be instructed hmm. Part of the book, one of my favorite I sat down with this guy named Justin Baldoni a few years ago, and we, we had a conversation about empathy. And one of the insights he shared with me that was uh, one of those just like guess words, uh, he said that "human in Arabic translates roughly to "to forget," which I love that premise that we are perhaps born with everything that we need." and culture and a lot of the outside inputs force us to forget some truths that we already know. So, I think there's power uh, in a long way to answer your short question. There is power in, in statements as simple as, people do well when they can. Or one of the quotes we use often at Character Strong is, there is a reason for every behavior. Mm. One of my favorite quotes that I've tried to hunt down where it comes from, but haven't found the source yet is, Everything we do in life either says, I love you or please love me. And I think simple thoughts like that remind us of something that we probably already knew. Mm. But because of the circumstances of the world, we get frustrated, we get overwhelmed, we get cynical, we get skeptical of people. And I think sometimes those simple frameworks for us to understand, okay, perhaps this person is missing the skill or perhaps this person has an unsolved problem. It just gives me one more layer of defense to remember something that I already know, which is that I want to be loved. Everyone, everything I do says, I love you or please love me. And the same is true for this person across from me. If I can hold people, you know, on the far side of that sort of perspective, it gives me one more filter of grace to interact with in the world. And so, yeah, it shaped the way I look at people. It definitely gets, it's one of those head nod moments for educators when we're talking about students and think it just helps remind us of something already known.
1: yeah no that I, I think that's so beautiful and it reminds me I believe it was attributed to Plato and there's even a word for it in Greek that I'm forgetting am amniocesis or something. but he I believe he said that all learning is really just remembering. Hmm. Right. And then there's a Greek word that means that too. Of
0: course there is.
1: Oh yeah. That's so good. And then, and then what you said, I don't know that it's the exact line, but in the core in a course in miracles, there's a line about an attack is always either a loving expression or a cry for help. Hmm. So kind of what you're saying about is Hmm. saying, I love you, or please love me. I love that. The simplicity of phrasing it that way, but you might find a reference in a course in miracles if you haven't already. Hmm. So, Now that's, that's awesome. Okay. So we were talking about why we're not more kind and we've talked about incompetence, insecurity, and inconvenience. And I think we're still on incompetence.
0: Yeah. We could spend all day on incompetence. for sure. I
1: I know I could for sure. Is, Is there more to say on that one or, or shall we move on to insecurity?
0: Yeah. I mean, for people listening a, a simple reflection question is like, what are the skills that live beneath kindness? I think about that a lot. Like what what, what supports or what's the scaffolding that holds up this behavior that we want in our life? Because mm-hmm. I think we forget yeah. that a lot of our behaviors are shaped by these this underbelly of um, emotional intelligences and, and skills. Yeah. And so the book unpacks empathy. It talks about forgiveness, it talks about vulnerability as competencies that if we aren't as well-versed with, the argument is that kindness becomes harder.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and Houston, let me let me jump in here too, because I think, again, sometimes the simplest things are the most profound, right? And this message of deep kindness, I actually think is super profound. And one of them is this, is that, and maybe it's nice versus kind, like you started to unpack that a bit and saying, from my view, there's a kind of kindness, or maybe it is just niceness that is conditional. It's in, mm-hmm. in order to, I'll do this mm-hmm. if. But then when, what I'm seeing and what you're saying about deep kindness is it's, it's unconditional is I'm willing yeah. to extend this. I'm willing to be this. And I love your phrase, by the way, of a to be list. <laughs> I'd never heard that before, but maybe you could talk for a moment about what is a to be list? And then do you see like, what's the quality of uh, unconditionality that's associated with deep kindness?
0: Yeah, my, so perhaps the, the most important story to me in the book is about my mom who I just got to see for the first time uh, since February. I'm an only child, and uh, the book will share stories of how my mom navigated stage four colon cancer and the journey she had around that. And I won't ruin too much of it, but there was a nurse who, out of all the people I interacted with in my visits with my mom to the hospital, I only remember one of them. And I think about this, this idea that all the nurses my mom had, you did their job correctly, even competently. They had they had the same to-do lists, manage IV lines, administer medication, report to the doctor, right? the same set of job descriptions. And it's fascinating to me now, four years later, I think about this idea, we can do everything that we're responsible for and still not be memorable at our job. Why is that? We can do everything on our to-do list and feel accomplished and still not be sort of wonderful at our, our work. And so I, I talk about this nurse and how she was very competent important, of course, especially the medical field, Mm. but (laughs) alongside her to-do list, I think she had a to-be list. And I think she prioritized that to-be list, the who I want to be list with as much uh, clarity and passion and discipline as she did everything on the to-do list. And I think it's one of the things that we have a hard time with. We talked about a little bit earlier, you alluded to it in the conversation around love. We all want to be loving we all want to be loved. We all want more kindness or generosity or patience. Some of us would even say like, I am a patient person. The hard part with those words is that they tend to be abstract sort of ethereal values. And it's hard to know what it looks like, especially over time to put those into meaningful practice. And so I think we get caught up in the productivity of our to-do list because it's really checkoffable, super concrete, right? We know how to get to inbox zero or coordinate our schedules or you know, finish this project within a certain timeline. We know how to check things off. And in fact, I think our culture has bred us to think that checking things off is what makes us valuable. That transactional accomplishment, that sense of achievement is what is most worthwhile. And so we love checking things off. We will write down things we've already done just to check them off.
1: Yes. I have done that.
0: I have done that. Yeah, I think everyone in the world has. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes we just need to know, are we okay? Like are we good? Are we moving forward? Yeah. And so one of the practices that I would challenge people to is like, what if above our to-do list we wrote out a to be list and we made it concrete? Let's say the two words I want to be are kind and grateful today. This could change on a day-to-day basis or you can keep it persistent. And if that is true, then what actions am I going to bring forward that I can check off now that they have to be checkoffable to, to necessarily embody that thing? But how can I begin to create a discipline around pursuing these abstract things I say are important? So maybe on my to-be list today is to send a message to someone in my life around something that um, I'm reminded of when I look at. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite messages to send. I just heard this song today. It reminds me of you. It's also one of my favorite messages to receive. Mm-hmm. I that's one of the habits I've built into my life is I try to send at least a one. This reminds me of you message a day. Grateful. I want to be grateful. Okay. What does that actually practically mean? It means that between nine thirty and 10, when I have my next break today, I'm going to take a 10 minute walk and identify five things that I'm grateful for that exist within 10 minutes of my home. We actually do this organizationally at character strong Every day we put out our work goals and we have to-do items and to-be items. Mm. And we want to be conscious about holding both of those things with equal value because what we give our time to is what we value. One One of the most frustrating articles I've ever read is Wall Street Journal is, are you as busy as you think? And it said, what if we were never again allowed to use the excuse, I don't have time? What if we had to say, this is not my priority? Pretty important distinction. Because yeah. as soon as I say, kindness is not my priority, it changes the it changes the way I, I think about how I value that thing in my life. So all that to say, the practice of deep kindness to me is this is is partially a disciplined pursuit. to make time over time for something that I say is important. And as my friend Dexter Davis beautifully says, we are not human beings, we are human becomings, which means anything that we want to be, must be, become a part of our practice, must become a part of our rituals, our routines, our habits. To hold that alongside the other question you had around unconditionality, part of that comes from a, a sense of discipline, right? I am going to do this thing regardless of circumstances, is what, is what discipline begs of us. Whether or not I feel like it, whether or not it's comfortable, the disciplined pursuit to improve at something would tell us the only way we get better at it actually is to do it in discomfort is to do it in inconvenience. Yeah. And to yeah to echo or double tap the implication that to do kindness only conditionally I would argue is absolutely an act of niceness, a practice of convenience typically only serves me. It's something I do when I feel good to make me feel good mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the honest disciplined pursuit of a more loving and generous world. Yeah.
1: That's these, again, I think these are really deep, ultimately, they're very deep and personal questions that we get to ask if we choose to, no one's going to force us to, Um, and we've touched on with that unconditionality, some of perhaps inconvenience. Is there anything more that you would, you would add to, to this conversation about what prevents us from being kind when it comes to these things of incompetence, insecurity, inconvenience, anything, anything else come up, or do you feel like we've covered that pretty well?
0: Yeah, well, the book covers it better. Uh, for, for sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> although I do like I like the uh, the messy mind map that conversations allow us to explore. The one we didn't share a lot about that maybe I'd offer a, a short story on and a story that's not in the book but related to the book is the concept of insecurity, which is a reframing of fear. And I talk about fear insecurities as just lies that we've told ourselves long enough that we've started to believe that they're true. And I think those lies are just you think about how much data we receive on any given day gigabytes and gigabytes of inbound data and words and images and videos. And the reality is our brain is not caught up. Its capacity is not there to sift through that data effectively. And I think it's an important pausing question to say, is all that data coming into me? Is it true? Is it all true? Is it all true for me? And is it all good for me? Is it all worthwhile to me? And the certain answer to that is no, but I don't have the time or capacity to sift through it all effectively, which means some things are going to get into my consciousness that aren't true, but I'm going to over time believe that it's true. Mm -hmm. To me, that is like the fear of embarrassment or rejection or failure are just simply these things that culture has told us is going to hurt you, whether that is an external thing or our primal desire to survive, we will operate so often unconsciously with these fears that control a lot of our life. And I don't think people always, draw the line between the fear of failure and kindness, the fear of embarrassment and kindness, yeah. how shame prevents us from a, a connection. The story I would offer that I think is one of the most clear versions, at least for me, of this fear of failure preventing me from kindness, was just a, a little over a year ago. My, my grandfather, called Papa, was diagnosed with uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. And I had one of those sort of bizarre Experiences where you know that the interaction you're having with this person is the last one you're going to have. Those are tough because it puts a sense of pressure on that interaction to be, I don't know, the most meaningful interaction you've had or will have. And I wanted to say all of the things to honor and celebrate and tell him how I loved him and why, but we ended up talking about motorcycles. And I gave him sort of a fragile hug and I walked away thinking to myself, well, I'll write him something. I'll film a video. And I've spent a decade speaking publicly about kindness and compassion and love. And so I have this sense of myself that I'm supposed to be the person who is most equipped to say the perfect thing in the most painful moment. And I was like, well, this isn't right. And I I was so scared that I wasn't going to do my my grandfather justice and that as a speaker, it needs to be really good, right? There's a sense of perfection required from someone who's practiced it a lot. Yeah,
1: you're an orator.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm an right? orator. I should be able to orate this thing beautifully. Yeah. And finally, finally, three weeks later, I, I climbed, to, I hiked this beautiful hike. I was on top of this mountain. I meditated. I filmed this video and I sent it to him. And by the time I got down to the bottom, I had, I had service enough to talk to my mom. And in talking to my mom, my grandfather had just gone into a coma and he didn't see the video. So my fear of failing my grandfather in this act of what I consider critical kindness caused me to not act at all or not act in time to do the thing that I wanted to do. And that story for me is just the reminder that kindness is is almost always an act of courage. Deep kindness requires a sense of courage to recognize the insecurities that are preventing me from living a life in love.
1: Thank you for sharing that story. Sorry to hear that that message didn't get delivered. But in some ways, I, I suspect he got it. You know?
0: I like to hold that suspicion. And I wish I could have given it in person. You know, I wanted yeah. to give it in person.
1: Let me turn our discussion to, I want to talk a little bit about Character Strong. Mm-hmm. As you've t- you've touched on it. You talked about the work you're doing with schools, teaching things that are not normally part of the curriculum. Why? Why is this, why does this matter to you? What Maybe you start by telling us a little bit more about Character Strong and then tell us why.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I better be able to answer that question. Yeah, I, you know, I, I spoke, I spoke in schools for many years. That was actually the first like out of college, in college, I took a year off, I was working in schools. And so as I was finishing college, the first things I started doing was speaking at conferences and events and, and working with young people, middle school and high school primarily, I had had such a profound experience at a summer leadership camp that changed a lot of my paradigms. And I, between the desire to reshare those messages and my background in theater and performance, which was sort of like my desire to tell stories in the first place, like that intersection is, is why I started speaking in schools. And it was awesome. I did a lot of it. I spoke in 600 schools all over the place. I spent a lot of time on airplanes and rental cars and at Hampton Inns delivering a message that was important to me and at some point you realize the the you know the limits of of sort of individual bandwidth and individual storytelling to make the sort of for, for me personally the systemic impact that i i crave i suppose and as i sort of matured in my message i realized that i i wanted this to be less about me delivering the message and more about empowering educators to serve in a way that I believe many of them want to, right? To be more relational, to be more compassionate, empathetic, to teach the skills of being human beyond whatever the core curriculum they're supposed to quote unquote teach. And so in 2016, I approached um, this guy named John, who I saw speak at that leadership camp. He was the speaker, keynote speaker and counselor and everyone just like looked at John like this guy is the embodiment of inspiration. And I'd exchanged some emails with him over the years. And then when it was time to meet, for me to start speaking in schools, he was the first person to ever hire me to speak at his high school. So I did a, a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Assembly at, at Sumner High School back in 2009. And I remember him asking, like, do you want to come do this? I was like, yeah. He's like, cool, I'll pay you. I was like, What? this is, I can do this. So he still holds the credit for the very first of 600. And fast forward to 2016, I approached him. I said, Hey, you know, you've done amazing work in your your high school, building a culture that people literally were trying to replicate around the state. And then he moved to the district level uh, where he was working with systems, right? Thinking about how do we pre-K through 12th grade, how do we build in these social emotional skills, these leadership skills? I said you've been working at the school level at the district level i've been wandering the country (laughs) telling stories on a national level i think we could do this together right i think that there's a way to take what you've done here and to scale it to give more people these tools so we started in 2016 and i suppose at this point less than four years later we're working with about 2500 schools we work in all 50 states and nine countries and we're sprinting. We're sprinting to try to meet a need that's always been there, but a need that has been deepened and, and more revealed by the circumstances of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's the pandemic or whether that's what's going on in the conversations around racial justice and social justice, s- social emotional learning as a category has has blown up. And, and I feel really proud and confident that we are leaders in that space to do that work really well in schools and to offer teachers tools to respond to the current realities of the world and to teach the sort of things that I think are actually critical to navigate these times successfully.
1: Yeah, that's great. I'm really glad to know that you're doing that work. And I wish, I wish I'd had that. I don't know that I would have had a listening for it when I was a, a teenager. I was one of those at an alternative school. Yeah. High school's not my gig, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think I think it might have made a difference for me. Well, thanks for sharing that. The last thing that I want to ask you about, and then if there's anything else you want to touch on, we certainly can before we transition to the next part of the interview, but I want to ask you about being kind to ourselves. Yeah. Will you talk about I mean, I know again, as a coach, so many people beat themselves up, they put themselves down, they feel inadequate, or unprepared, or whatever and and you talk about just even making a 1% shift in in kindness generally not just for ourselves but that being a huge idea but maybe you could talk about those two things what why is even a 1% shift matter and also how can we be more kind to ourselves
0: i admittedly feel like i don't give this topic enough coverage
1: yeah you put it in here the back of the book <laughs>
0: i know i know and i think it speaks to the privilege I've had of of being surrounded circumstantially and, and, and through fortune by mentors and role models and family that have proved pretty relentlessly supportive. Which, by the
1: way, just to, to dig a little on that, you share in the book about the notes that your mom included in your lunch for a little yeah. while during your high school career. Will you share about that?
0: Yeah, K through 12 every day of my life. My mom wrote a lunch note on a post-it words of affirmation and love and support. It, I know it's pretty fortunate. and That is amazing. Uh, yeah. And I talk about how the consistency of small moments is what makes that action deep kindness to me, right? Yeah. Maybe what some might say is fluffy, just a little post-it note, but the relentlessness of it, is what sort of adds up to really one of the most profound acts of love I've ever experienced.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. The barrage
0: of kindness. The barrage. Right. And yeah. it didn't end
1: when you went to college. It changed form, right? But it didn't end. Then it was a yeah. phone call.
0: We talk every day. <laughs> yeah, She actually that, just called while we were talking. That is amazing. A, a, that, shut it down, mom. <laughs> left me a voicemail. She just <laughs> left me a voicemail. This is true. This is real. Wow, mom. that is awesome. Which is all that to say, I have a easier time being kind to myself. Now, am I hard on myself? Do I have high standards? Do I have a version of that that is that I'm challenged by? Absolutely. But I recognize that I don't have as clear a view on people that have a truly hard time receiving that kindness. I do talk about it through the lens of trust, which I think is one of the most important parts of the book to me. One of my favorite stories is this kid at the end of an assembly who was like, what if people don't want my kindness? Hmm which speaks to not only him as the giver, but also the person who's receiving it.
1: Yeah. And there's that back to that insecurity, by the way, right? As a barrier Mm -hmm. to being kind, but please continue. Absolutely.
0: And you could tell that this kid was earnest. Like he was like, at this point in my life, I want to be kind, but I don't feel like people are receptive to it. And through the conversation we unpacked, do people trust it? Do people trust receiving kindness from you? And his reflection was, I've done a lot of things in my life to break people's trust. And to me, the the story of my experience with this kid, having lived the life that I did, it was this really humbling insight into this idea for a lot of people, kindness has actually been a precursor to pain, right? Like people have experienced kindness from someone, then all of a sudden that same person has broken that trust or broken their heart. What was maybe even offered as selflessness was actually a form of selfishness. And for people that have navigated that sort of trauma, someone offering Kindness, especially someone that we don't have a pre existing relationship with or a good relationship with, it's easy to get uh, frustrated as a person giving it. Like, why don't you? I'm doing a good thing, right? We get entitled. We get uh, sort of indignant about like, we're taking the high road and you're like not even going to receive my goodness. Right. You know, I'm offering you a sandwich and you want money, right? Like that sort of like indignance <laughs> that we get around conditional generosity. Right. And the more humbling perspective is maybe this person isn't ready to receive your kindness, perhaps because they don't trust you for one reason or another, or perhaps because they don't trust themselves to receive something that is actually an intimate experience. Deep kindness is a, is a vulnerable experience to offer myself to be the recipient to because what if you offer this one day and you don't offer it the next? What if you say you're doing one thing, but you're actually doing another? Because guess what? I've experienced that before, and I'm not ready to receive that from you. So I feel like, I suppose I I, want to point to that part part of the book when it comes to self-compassion, because I think we could probably continue to regale people with the persistent truths of put your own oxygen mask on before others, or you can't give from an empty cup. But people already know those things. And I think the reframe to me that's important is we forget about the ingredient of trust Hmm. in the experience of deep kindness. And for me, in order to recognize what does it mean to receive kindness, I offer the unpacking of what does it mean to trust that kindness coming towards me is generous And, and recognize that it's okay sometimes not to receive something from someone when you feel it is disingenuous. And I think I had a great conversation with a, a guy named David the other day talking about the relationship between authenticity and kindness. And he goes, I hate, I hate the culture of when someone gives me a gift that they're pretending is thoughtful, but they don't actually know me. And me as the recipient is supposed to say, oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Because that is, that is the, my least favorite part of the world that I have to acquiesce to this false generosity and pretend like I want to receive this. He yeah. goes, well-intentioned or not, you don't understand me enough to do me a, this thing and I'm giving you the gift by receiving it without complaint. And so mm-hmm. to give ourselves permission that we don't have to receive every action of kindness from the outside world as true. Mm-hmm. But to pay attention to those who who over time have s- sought to earn our trust, to get clarity on those that are trying to love us authentically and allow ourselves mm-hmm. to listen to those who truly want what's best for us. We don't have to receive it from everyone, but to pay attention to those who want to give us it earnestly.
1: Mm. Thank you for that. Okay, well, Houston, we've covered so much already, but I just want to check in before we transition in our interview here to see if there's anything either from the book or or just from your life or the work you're doing that we haven't covered that you feel might be of benefit to the listener. Or is there anything else you want to say at this point?
0: No, I feel good about transitioning and I think in the transitioning uh, I just want to celebrate your capacity to receive is is so evident we've never met before but the the your capacity to listen to have others feel heard is palpable even through a zoom meeting and the intentionality of you so obviously having read large chunks of the book and curating this experience, towards your understanding makes me feel like my time is valued. So thank you for this so far.
1: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I I think we've crossed the halfway line pretty pretty easily. We're now into the enlightening lightning round. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> okay. Again, this is a variety of brief questions. My aim is to ask the question and for the most part to stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want, but I'll aim to keep us moving through this. So. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Workout. Okay. Number two, here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question, what important truth do very few people agree with you on?
0: That confetti kindness does a disservice to the world.
1: Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or saying or a quote or a quip, What would the shirt say? Make kindness normal. Okay, question number four. What book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: On Being Nice by The School of Life. Hmm.
1: Okay, and why that book?
0: Because it unpacks fun and complicated truths in a thoughtful way.
1: Right on, what are you currently reading?
0: I'm currently reading another book by The School of Life called An Emotional Education.
1: Uh, Question number five. This might refer to the good old days, you know, back when we traveled, we went places, <laughs> but the question is this, so you've traveled a lot in your life. What's one travel hack or maybe more than one, but what's something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: My own pillowcase. Why that? I sense a sense of familiarity, softness and non germiness against hotel pillows.
1: Do you, you, have you ever had the housekeeping staff take your pillowcase?
0: No, I'm very protective.
1: (laughs) Mm. What is there anything you do when you book travel, like any requests, certain floors away from elevators, anything with ground transportation or anything, anything like that, any apps, anything you do?
0: I have decided that Ubering is a better experience than rental cars, Mm. pretty much regardless of distance.
1: Wow. Okay. (laughs) Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age? Well,
0: dancing in the morning, every morning. I've missed a few days recently, but I had a really good street going. And that's going to be a commitment right after this book is done.
1: <laughs> awesome, That's great. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: What got in the way of their kindness?
1: Me too. Question number eight, what is the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work?
0: I believe it's Richard Rohr who says, I'm going to find it. So I do the quote honor. I have prayed for years for one good humiliation a day, and then I must watch my reaction to it. I have no other way of spotting both my denied shadow self, and my idealized persona seeking to be humbled would be the short answer.
1: Okay. And number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it?
0: I try to have a disposition that life is immediate. And so if there's something that's important to me, don't wait where possible. (laughs) Do you have
1: any examples of that you'd be willing to share?
0: I have long dreamed of co-living with friends and doing that in a more long-term way. So my commitment of the next year is to find land that my friends and I will build on.
1: Right on. That's great. Okay. And question number 10, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, of course, they can always pick up deep kindness and I hope they do. But what else would you have them do?
0: I don't know, in the current reality of the world, (laughs) if you're in Venice, we'll get coffee. But otherwise, Instagram is probably the space I'm most engaged with for better or for worse at Houston Craft. Awesome.
1: Okay. And as a thank you, Houston, for making time. and, and, And I do have, I'll say this, I do have just a few questions. If you're if you're still good for it about writing and creativity. But I want to include this here so I don't forget it or squeeze it at the end. In an effort to demonstrate my gratitude to you for sharing of your time and, and your wisdom and your experience with me and everyone listening, I've gone to the micro lending site Kiva.org and I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman in Liberia named Lucy, who will use this money to buy medicine that she will sell and will thereby improve the quality of life for people in her community her family and herself. So thank you for giving me a reason to
0: do that. Mm. I saw the founder of Kiva speak when I was in college and that was one of the more important talks I've listened to. Wow. So thank you for bringing me back to that.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Okay. So with that, man, I threw away my question set on writing a while back, but where do we begin? Let me ask you, let me ask you this. I'm fascinated by this. And I think for people who are interested to write a book, which is virtually everyone, if, if you get right down to it, is maybe, maybe you can share the process of this book becoming a reality. Like, when did you first know that you were going to write this book? What was the moment?
0: I've wanted to write a book for a long time. One of the pieces of wisdom from my mentor that rattled around in the back of my head for a long time was fly under the radar until you're ready to be seen. So there is a holding in balance like this, whatever you believe in and want to do, you should do it and allow yourself to build the, the wisdom, the curation, the thoughts, the, the depth of content that allow you for when you do the thing to have it be really meaningful. And so I spent 10 years talking about kindness <laughs> and wanted to write a book, but my background is also in design. And uh, literally one of the biggest barriers for me was not knowing what the cover was going to look like. And so one day sitting on the beach, I I had just returned from a trip where for the first time I had spoken. I remember feeling really passionate about speaking on like this. I want to tear down this post or throw kindness around like confetti. And I, And I remember having this like insight as to like, I've talked about kindness for so long and I've realized that this is actually the unique angle that I've taken on it. Where some people like talk about kindness and provide all these inspirational stories, but I realized like we have this sort of fundamental misunderstanding of it. And I remember sitting on the beach, reflecting on that talk and how I'd arrived at it over the course of 10 years. And then I saw the cover and it was confetti. The title of the book was confetti. And there was like minimalist confetti falling. And I was like, this is it. I know what I'm gonna write about. I'm gonna write about how the way we talk about kindness in our world doesn't honor how hard it is. And and uh, the next day I started writing the book and then I was going to self-publish, but through a series of fun serendipities got put in touch with Simon & Schuster who decided to to publish. And towards the end of the editing process, they said, we're going to change the name. And I was like, oof, this is hard because this is what I saw. And they said, you know, I think it's important that we call the book we call the book what you want people to do, not what you're trying to move people away from. And I was like, fair enough. <laughs> and they sent me the cover and I was like, I really like it. <laughs> so I was able to see a new cover after that. But that, that's where it began was seeing. I'm such a visual learner that when I saw the cover, I was like, I know what to write about.
1: Yeah, it's amazing to me how powerful something like that can be, where we get an image of the future that we can then move towards with confidence and not mm-hmm. remain. You know, paralyzed and uncertainty or ambiguity or something. Talk to me, please, about and by the way, you mentioned like this series of serendipity I think you used, which, if I understand, was Nicole Nichols, a member of Oprah's team, hearing you yeah. speak, right yeah. and came up to you afterwards and said, "Yeah, have you written a book or something like that?:
0: Yeah, good read where, yeah. where were
1: you Where were you in the writing process when when you were approached by
0: by her? I was halfway done with the book. I had just spoken. So I, I had the, the, the clear vision of the cover. I sat down, made a commitment to write a thousand words a day, I did it for 45 days. I was, and I was, I was about halfway through that process. When I spoke at an event that my friends, Yes Siri, who are a YouTube channel, that's all about seeking discomfort. I spoke at their first ever live event and Nicole's son was there. Who's in the, he's a high school student. And he saw me speak and, and thought that what I was sharing was valuable. So he came up and, and he wanted me to speak at his school so he emailed me and he copied his mom, which I thought was like just interesting yeah and then I looked at her I like looked her up and I was like, <laughs> wait she helps coordinate and run the Oprah Winfrey Network. That's so why I responded I was like, let's all sit down and talk yeah and yeah sure enough when we were when we were talking about me speaking at at his school I was I shared that I was writing a book about it she's like, this is really awesome. Do you have a book And I shared I was writing one and she's like, "Well do you have a publisher?" And I was like <laughs> uh, no do you know anyone because <laughs> I was really committed to self-publishing for lots of reasons but as soon as this opportunity came up it just made so much sense my goal with the book is is to better leverage character strong by, by hopefully right creating a sense of, of expertise and, uh, and allowing that to be on the sorts of stages that I believe I'm capable of serving on yeah. Right? And and sometimes frustratingly, the nature of that world is you need an inroad. You need to have people believe that you're capable of it. And yeah. one way to do that is to have a, a book.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, yeah. That social proof counts for a lot. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that story reminds me of that saying by Paulo Coelho, when you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. Hmm. You know that here you are, you make the commitment, you're doing a thousand words a day. You're 4,500 words in, 45,000 words in, right? And then it's, hey, do you have a book? As a matter of fact, (laughs) I'm well on my (laughs) way. That's that's really cool. (sighs) Tell me, if you will, please, about your writing. How did you, like as a practical matter, so you've been speaking on this for a decade. You had Mm -hmm. this thousand word a day commitment that you were observing, but how did you approach it from the outlining? How did you deal with the... The writing—did you do it every morning? Just what tools did you use? Like anything about that? Did you did you write in Word? Did you write in Google Doc? How did you collect your stories? I know there's like a a big question, but as a practical matter, how did the book go from the big picture down Mm -hmm. to the daily routine?
0: Yeah, I I suppose that the blessing and the curse is is having come from a background of speaking, which means my job is curating stories uh, around a topic to move people towards a given purpose or truth. And so I have a lot of practice and consider it. One of my gifts and most cultivated skills is, is storytelling around a specific truth. And I love being an amalgamator, right? like taking disparate pieces of content and trying to bring it towards an organized sense of understanding. So I've been doing that in leading workshops. I've been doing that in, in putting together keynotes for a long time. And so that component fortunately felt pretty natural to me. I'd been talking about kindness for a long time, and I'd been talking about kindness through the lens of incompetence, and security and inconvenience. So it made sense as I began to write the book to organize my thoughts in the same way that I spoke about them. And then the fun process of writing, I would sit down every morning. It had to be the first thing that I did, or else I would allow other things to take priority and creative energy away. And I wrote it in a Google Doc because it felt the most collaborative. It felt the most easy access space to also be doing research while I was doing it. I'm not, I never was a good, like rough draft writer in college or in high school. Like I always wanted to, as I was writing, get the research to bring into the piece. Like, And so while it was very free flowing, I'm also, I would also want it to be the quality of writing that the final draft needed to be. Not everyone writes like that. Some people need multiple drafts. But I wanted to write the way that I knew the book wanted to sound. And so it would typically take me 90 minutes, sometimes up to three hours to write a thousand words. But a lot of those chapters were born of the repetition of telling a lot of these stories live. So I had the framework and the rule that my mentor had taught me is tell the story like you see it in your mind. Right. So I could just whether I was speaking it or whether I was writing it, that's how I would unpack it. And then the gift of writing versus speaking was finding the micro moments or the micro truths within a story that sometimes when you only have the hour, you glaze over in favor of the bigger story arc. But in writing, you get to really find smaller moments of meaning and and precision and unpacking, you know, tangential truths to the main truth. So as this being my first book, that was a joy that I discovered in the process that motivated the writing more because I knew what stories I wanted to walk in with in in a lot of, not all the chapters, but in a lot of the chapters, but finding the surprises in those stories was one of the delights that helped with the discipline.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. When you wrote, tell me about your use or non-use of two things, caffeine and music.
0: Hmm. Uh, the morning routine of getting coffee was an ingredient. And that's just my first opportunity of the day to be outside and to be in movement, and to be a bit in gratitude and, and in thought before I sit down. So I don't rely on caffeine for the energy of writing, but I rely on the routine of caffeine for the circumstance of writing. And then music is my love language. So music was always on. What was, I- sorry, sorry I-
1: what, what, what was the soundtrack? Sorry to interrupt, but what was the soundtrack for the book? If, if we can phrase it that way.
0: My favorite description of my music proclivities is a, a playlist I found over a decade ago now on a platform that I think no longer exists, but it was called Indie with a Wobble. And that is how I would describe the soundtrack of the book was like Indie that has been remixed to be either like lo-fi or down-tempo or have a little bit of a beat. That's my favorite genre and probably what I wrote most too.
1: Right on. Tell me, if you will, about the the decision to self publish. You said there were a number of reasons that you were going that direction. What were some of them?
0: I think just full ownership of the experience, and probably the more honest reason was like the sense of control that I wanted over this thing that was held close to me. Yeah. Um, And worrying that someone else wasn't going to do it right. And there's there's been parts of the process where I felt like, yeah, it's like out of my control. Like they, we went from one cover design to something totally different, went from one title to something totally different. And my my initial reaction to the the cover that is now there was like, Ugh. like I didn't <laughs> like it. And I've actually grown to be really fond of it. But yeah, I think a, a large part of it was, was mostly about my sense of control over the process. Yeah. And really timeline was big to me because I was going to write this book fast and it was in many ways part of our organizational strategy for for 2020 was to have this book be a catalyst going into this next year around speaking and putting me on stages and things like that but Simon and Schuster came into the picture tiller press is the the imprint um, in february and they wanted to publish it in september and i'm not very familiar with the publishing industry but my friend who is was like that is bionic like that speed is yeah. They want this book live, and I was like, "Cool!" That, that was encouraging to me that they were going to mobilize quickly enough to make this real. Yeah,
1: that that is a very quick timeline, <laughs> as yeah. you, as you all well know. Now, <laughs> what did you learn about yourself in the process of writing and publishing this book?
0: I learned that I, I get to see. I think arriving at confetti as a concept is the byproduct of a relentless repetition that. I don't know if everyone gets to arrive at be- because of, I feel, I feel lucky and a little bit unique at my age to have been doing something now for over a decade, right? I'm yeah. 31 and I've had a really persistent through line of what I talk about, what I do. And a lot of my friends my age have, have bounced, right? For one reason or another. And so I think about what, is that, what does that give to me? Well, it gives me a sense of clarity and ownership. And, and I think when you do something for that long it's really been in the past year, year and a half, where I feel a sense of expertise or or like mastery. That is a, it's like a really fun and meaningful feeling to feel that like, I feel like people could offer me just about any question around the concept of kindness. And I have research or experience or anecdote to draw it back to. And not only that, but I have a unique lens on something that is in some ways commonplace. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I learned that I feel proud of is like, I think I have a unique perspective on, on something that a lot of people sort of take for granted as, as, as pedestrian almost as every day. Yeah. And I like feeling like I know something deeply that is commonly desired, but not necessarily deeply understood. Yeah. So I think I feel proud of, of that in this writing process. And then the far side of that is the, the frustration with, how much more you want to say and the discipline to, as Stephen King calls it, to kill your darlings, right? To like Mm -hmm. want to say certain things, but have to reduce or curate or, you know, I wish the book was a a sprawling conversation like this one. And in some ways it has to be linear.
1: Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that. So I just want to, I think before we, before we wrap, I do want to ask about promotion, about marketing and promotion. I think that many, many authors, many people who aspire to write a book think that finishing the manuscript is the finish line, or they might have the foresight to see publishing the book, getting it off the press is the finish line. But you know, there's more than a million titles on Amazon with zero sales. And I think if people don't find it, if they don't care about it, if they never pick it up, that that's not a very satisfying experience probably for most of us. So even though your book is just releasing as of this recording, which I think the date is now the 29th. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. 29th of September in 2020. What have you learned about marketing and promoting a book?
0: Ask for help, (laughs) pay people appropriately, and think about all the different ways that you can creatively celebrate. So for example, we're one of the things that we're pulling together are these like fun gift bags that we're giving to different people in these different categories of health or politics or Hollywood or activism, like musicians. And we're trying to deliver the book to a lot of folks and we have pulled together. I had my friend, Miranda, who's an incredible line artist, make custom bandanas so that we could put them as a part of the book and we'll wear them. And then we're going to deliver, there's a shovel on the cover. We're going to deliver the books with shovels to people to say six feet apart. Right so on. like trying to find the whimsy and the celebration yeah. in, in the delivery, which makes promotion feel more creative and exciting to me. Yet yeah, hiring my friends to do cool things like create quote graphics for for sharing in social media. And then uh, I'm on the 29th, on the, the day of release, I'm hosting what I'm calling the Kindness Conversational Conference, which will be 13 hours of 20-minute conversations with over 30 people representing a huge variety of insights and works and worlds with the whole goal just being to provide it's free, provide value to people and insights into kindness that can live on in a lot of different ways. So I'm really excited about that. And it sort of holds true to my longstanding belief in marketing, which is like, you do good work, you're generous with people, and you put out something of value for free, and people are drawn to support you in other ways. So yeah. that's the goal. Uh, I
1: love I love your response there, because I see in this, in interviewing authors, so many people that have such incredible experience or so many great ideas, but they're not, they don't give a lot of thought to getting those ideas out into the world. And clearly you have. And I think this deserves that. So I'm really, I'm really grateful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Well, the final thing that I want to ask, I do want to leave a moment. Is there anything else related to writing or creativity that feels like it might be useful to talk about? So I'll park that for a moment and just say, then my final question ultimately is. What advice or encouragement would you leave anyone listening with who's either in the process of their own creative project, they're stuck in the mire, or they're they haven't even started yet for whatever reason. What advice or encouragement do you give somebody listening to help them finish their own creative project?
0: Mm, one of my favorite quotes that was born out of the process of writing the book is that discipline is is as much a function of purpose as it is effort, and I think that clarity of purpose drives a lot of our most resilient actions. So, the clearer we get on who this book is getting to land in, on what that book is going to do for people, the easier it is to create structured discipline in our life, like writing a thousand words a day, and the easier it becomes to ask for help from people when you know why you want the thing you want, and then all that to say, it also just requires us to sit down and do the work. Yeah. If we want to. (laughs) No substitute for that. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome.
1: Okay. Well, again, I know we've covered so much and I'll think of three more fantastic questions as soon as we disconnect, but is there anything else related to the writing or creative process that we didn't touch on that feels like it might be worth talking about?
0: I think inviting diverse readership into the process of writing is also was a, a cool, humbling piece for me. I had my team read it. I was having my mom read it. I had a a very critical woman who had like nothing to do with the world, read it, and had some great insights. I hired a high school English teacher and editor to read it. Like I just wanted as many people to begin processing it as possible. And that's a really vulnerable piece of the process, but some of the most important insights and changes I made were as a result of just allowing myself to be open to the idea of all these different perspectives. What, what's one gonna... example
1: of that? Like something that really you got notes back from somebody and you made a what felt like a significant change.
0: There was two in the process. One was one of the the people that read it felt like the whole book was really negative. Hmm. And I, and I think there was a piece of that, which is just the, I think people are going to respond to the book as like a bit of a surprise that most kindness books aren't this uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, already some of the reviews on Goodreads are like, well, I like confetti kindness. And I'm like, good, that's good. It's just not the only thing we need. And so I did I did reframe some things to have a more optimistic lens, which I think is important. I think people need a sense of hope coming yeah. out of a book like this because it is prickly and yet we need to hope to propel action and then another change I made was um, there's a, a portion of the book where I talk about not doing an act of kindness towards someone because of a fear and one of the editors, a cold reader, was like, "If you don't complete this, because I had I had the opportunity to make it right, because mm-hmm. if you don't complete this, you've lost credibility to me." I was like, "Great!" And the next day, I I basically followed through on the action that I needed to to close the loop, even wow. though it was un- really scary and uncomfortable to me. It's good. It was like yeah. you're a hypocrite if you don't do this. I'm like, you're right, and thank <laughs> you for the accountability. And yeah. now I'm going to go and do that and then write about it.
1: <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah, man. I mean, that's just a reminder to me about the value of whatever goals we set for ourselves, writing a book or anything else is not just the accomplishment of the thing, but what we become in the process. Mm. Right? And that's like a perfect example of that to yeah. me. That's great. Well, awesome. Well, Houston, I've so much enjoyed our conversation. I know I've already told you that I appreciate and enjoyed your book. This, I'm just going to look at my release schedule. I know I've been in communication with your team about coordinating this as best we can with your launch. I will let you know and your team when it comes out. So if that's awesome. useful to put it on your social media and things like that. And I will do the same. I'll leave a review on Amazon, a favorable review of, of the book. And in, if there's anything else I can do to to be helpful, please let me know.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Um it's so appreciate the brilliant conversation. I don't know. We, we have another conversation to have with each other yeah. uh, that is less formal and, and more investigative and, and relational, but I appreciate your heart, your wisdom, capacity to listen and, and to share this today. This was super fun and meaningful yeah. to me.
1: It was. I, I look forward to the time our paths cross again. So I don't know when and where, but next time you're in, in Utah, please let me know. That's a good point. And, uh, I'm
0: coming back, I will come back. Yeah, yeah. It's
1: secretly the center of the universe if you don't know that already. So.
0: I have used similar verbiage for Utah yeah. after we drove through recently. I was like, this place is a well-kept secret. Yeah, it's pretty Lots neat. Lots of good comes here. All right, well, I'll talk to you soon. All right, sounds
1: good. Kay. see ya. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world